now that you've written the book, you can stop writing the blog every day. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why would I ever stop doing the thing that creates future success for me? Like, why would I do that? And his, his thinking was like, you can now, you can now settle. You can just relax. Why would I ever relax? I'm going to die. And then I'm going to relax for the rest of eternity. <laughs> I only got one shot of this. I'm 53 years old. I got 40 more years. I got four more decades. I'm not going to spend them relaxing. Why would I do that? Hi there, guys. Today, we are joined all the way from Ohio in the US by Anthony Anarino. He is a best-selling author and internationally recognized speaker on sales, success, personal development, leadership, and entrepreneurship. Uh, Anthony's got a very interesting habit. He writes a thousand words every single day at 4.30 a.m. on the subjects of business, right? So, and he's been doing this, by the way, for over six years. So that's a a very disciplined character that we're going to be talking to in this episode of The Matt Brown Show. Uh, He's actually written three books, The Lost Art of Closing, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need and Eat Their Lunch, which is all around competitive dynamics and how to go out there and steal a competitor's business and much, much more in that space. So we actually focus on Eat Their Lunch, that book on this particular episode of the show, but we do jump around somewhat. So Anthony runs a very successful uh, business that generates annual revenues of over $50 million uh, a year. Um, And some of these firms that he are his clients, I should say, serve some of the most recognized brands in the United States. So um, Anthony speaks to and provides what he calls transformational workshops. So we actually um, take a look at his studio. So if you haven't you know, checked out our YouTube channel, please go and have a look. Uh, he is um, uh, friends with Seth Godin, and so he's converted an apartment into a broadcast studio, which is really, really interesting. Um, his blog is the salesblog.com, and it's currently read by over 60,000 people each and every month. Um, and he's just a very, very, very uh, knowledgeable and down-to-earth um, talent. So pay careful attention, guys, to the part of the show where Anthony reveals the four levels of value creation. So that's really, really powerful. Um, And then also pay careful attention to the part of the show where we double down on B2B versus B2C attention battles and the role of data in that space. Very, very, very insightful stuff. And he also reveals when you should compete on price. Um, You know, we always get told to compete on value, but is price a play? Well, you'll find out here on The Matt Brown Show. So without further ado, enter Anthony Anarino. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another cracking edition of the Map Round Show. Uh, today, I've got some amazing talent from you all the way from uh, Ohio in the States. Funny enough, there's uh, quite a few guests coming from that part of the world, so I don't know what's going on there. But uh, Anthony Anarino, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you. Likewise, likewise. Yes, it's been a long time coming. So I'm uh, super excited to to explore um, our meat and potatoes uh, main meal of the day on this podcast with you. Um, and so that is um, this uh, idea here around um, this book that you wrote. Uh, you know what they say, if you write a book, you're obviously credited as being the expert, right? So <laughs> uh, this one's called uh, Eat Their Lunch, Winning Customers Away From Your Competition. So Anthony, um, before we get into the main meal, why don't you uh, serve us up the hors d'oeuvre and give us the elevator pitch about who you are, what are you about, uh, what do we need to know? I'm a uh, speaker, I'm an author. I'm a writer. I'm mostly a writer. I write every single day. I get up at 4.30. I've written a 1,000 words a day for about 11 years now on sales, leadership, management, success, 
hustle, productivity, the things that, that actually help people get better results. Uh, I started selling when I was 15, uh, making cold calls, got into the family business so I didn't have to work very hard, or at least I thought it would go that way. Well, I fronted a hair metal band and uh, moved out to Los Angeles, played music for a while, and then uh, ended up having a brain surgery, came back to Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from, and built the family business from $3 million to $50 million, and then I decided I was going to start helping other people. So that's when I started writing and doing all the stuff that people see me do now. But what I care about is human effectiveness. So that, that's the thing that I spend most of my time on. Amazing stuff. So family business, what is that family business? Temporary staffing. Temporary staffing. Okay, cool. That's been around for a while, has it? Or has it changed over oh, yeah. the years? No, it's been around for a long time. Really? Hey? And um, how's, the, uh, how's that business been affected if it has been by um, COVID? Everybody's business here has been affected by COVID in some way or the other. I mean, for, for a lot of people, businesses got shut down here for a little while. But mostly everything's back up and running. And with the exception of a few states like New York and California, we're, we're back and we're moving. So the economy's great. Lots of jobs. Lots of people unemployed, but it's really because they get enough money to stay home mm. or, or they would go back to work. But there's plenty of jobs and things are going the right direction. Um, how has COVID actually improved your business? So what a... Any kind of disruption like this, whether it's a, a recession or whether it's a recession that's caused by a pandemic or any other external factor, it, it does a couple things for you as a business person. So first you get clarity on what's important. Like that, that's what changes first, like what's truly important. And then, then you start to think about like what are the metrics and you start to take a real deep look at your business to say, okay, how am I going to survive this? But what generally happens is once you start looking at the business that way, you find all kinds of improvements that even after the event, like so after the recession or after the pandemic, which there will be an after the pandemic. I know people don't think that right now, but we're in the middle chapter. You know, the first chapter is you're walking along, minding your own business, your life's going great. And then the middle chapter is like, boom, mm -hmm. guess what? Now you got a problem. And uh, that gives people a lot of clarity and they start to, to change the way that they think about their business. So mine personally, as a trainer and as a speaker, you know, I go to people. I get on airplanes every single week until March 5th this year and then no more airplanes. And so you, you have to think about, like, how do I deliver this content? How do I transfer my knowledge to people when we can't be in the same room for a little while? So that's why I'm talking to you on uh, a teleprompter in a studio because my business had to pivot immediately because we train, you know, thousands of people mm. and you've got to have some way to do it. But I think you can have two responses to a pandemic. You can decide that it's an external event, put your goals on hold, stop doing the things that you know are right and try to wait it out. Or you can decide I'm going to fight my way through this. I'm going to start making adjustments. I'm going to figure out what I can do and I'm going to go do those things because that's within my control. So you can't, you can never control external events. All you can do is control your response to them. And so the, the best business people are the ones that accept the reality. There is a pandemic. Doesn't matter if you like it or not. Reality Matt doesn't care about your feelings at all. Reality is just going to be reality, whether or not you like it. And then the people who adjust and say, I'm going to fight my way through this, they generally do. And they end up better and stronger on the other side because they did.
Mm. Yeah, that's the quintessential challenge for entrepreneurs, right? It's the it's that no matter what lies in front of you, you have to overcome it. it doesn't matter if it's a pandemic or cash flow or whatever, a stiff comp- competitor, which we'll get into in a second. It's all something that you have to overcome at some point. That that's that's the whole game. So if if it's not a pandemic, then it's a competitor. If it's not a competitor, it's the economy crash. I mean, you're always dealing with something. That's the fun of the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the economic crash is uh, is coming. Have you seen? Have you follow, Have you been following all these IPOs that are happening over in the states? Oh yeah, it's like the wild west at the moment. It's not going to end yeah. well. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Well, you know, a lot of times uh, people fall in love with a model. So in the United States, everybody wants to be Uber. U- Uber's probably uh, about $20 billion in debt right now because people love the, the model and they keep putting money into the model. But the model hasn't proven to be profitable yet. So we, we like these things and we think, I, and I love Uber. I hope they survive. I hope they find a way to be super profitable in the future. But it's a harder business model than people think it is. Mm. And so I, I think a lot of these models are going to shake out the way that uh, some of the early models on uh, the Internet shaped up anyway. Like they didn't do well. Some do well, but most don't. Mm. And uh, they, they think it's easier than it is. Like it's, it's not easy to be an Amazon. It's the same thing in any business, though. A lot of people think having a low price is easy, like a Walmart or an Aldi's or whatever you guys have there in Johannesburg. It's hard to have a low price. It's really hard. Like you got to cut everything. You can't spend money to get a better result because you ain't got the money. So that's the problem for, for most people is they fall in love with a model and not recognizing just how much work any good model is. Mm. Yeah, just to pick up on something you mentioned before we went live was that, I mean, you also mentioned that you're speaking to me uh, on a teleprompter essentially from an apartment, um, which you've, um, I understand you've retrofitted into this kind of new, now broadcast studio with the idea of being, well, I suppose you met Seth Godin and that kind of where it's kind of where the idea of kind of, you know, manifested itself from. Um, but um, what's interesting for me is that models now are almost, they're more in flux than they ever were before. Um, you know, the things are accelerating faster and faster and faster. And I know we've heard that all before for years, but it's just funny for me because when you, every year it's something else that's adding more fuel into like these black swan type business events, right? That are, it's almost, we weren't ever prepared for, uh, as, as I mean, as an entrepreneurship community, a, a community of business, uh, we, we by and large were not 
prepared for the eventualities of a pandemic. We just weren't. Um, right. And and now looking back, I mean, it's going to be almost a year, right? Um, since uh, March uh, when uh, COVID hit and so forth. But I mean, I've heard, I've had a few people on the show now and a lot of businesses are much better off for it. Um, and if you were to label, you know, C19 as a competitor almost, you know what I mean? Not, not in the sense of a commercial business, but it's another thing right. that said, hey, I'm going to take you out. <laughs> you know, you may have got to the start line, buddy, but I'm going to take you out. Um, and so, and going back to Uber, one of the interesting things that we've seen here is that there's two other brands now that have come into um, the African continent, Middle Eastern Africa, that we've been dealing with directly that are direct competitors to Uber. One of those competitors is Bolt. Have you heard of them before? No, don't know them. So, um, but it's literally the same business. Take, right. out, take out Uber Eats. It's the same thing. Uh, and they've got a commercial fleet arm as well. Um, and I wanted to maybe use this uh, preamble to not get into the the specifics around com- competition. Um, you know, um, what does it mean today? Maybe let's set up the premise here. You mentioned in your book here, um, you know, this idea of eating your competitors' lunch. What does that mean today uh, in the in the context of business and competition? I, you know, when you write a book, you don't get to uh, title your book. So I, I've written three books. The first book. It's called The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. And uh, that's not what I named it, but I, I gave the book to the publisher and they're like, nope, we're changing the name. It's The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. I wrote a second book called uh, The Art of Commitment Gaining. And they said, no, we're naming it The Lost Art of Closing. And, uh, and the, the, by the third book, like they didn't even ask me anymore. There was no more romance at all. Like we weren't, we weren't in a courtship anymore. We've been married for 25 years in their mind. And I just got a note that said, this cover's going up on Amazon with this title on Monday. If you have any changes, send us a note back. Like that was it. And I saw the picture uh, of the book, which I loved in the title, Eat Their Lunch. Uh, one of the people in the publishing company, Nikki Papadopoulos, uh, chose that name because she was pregnant and she was really hungry and they were at lunch and she came up with the title. What that means is uh, the idea is that there's some of us that work in a business and to win new business, we literally have to go take it from our competitors. And at the same time, we're out trying to pursue their clients to take them away from them. They're trying to take our clients away from us. So eating their lunch means going and re, re, uh, displacing them, like forcing them out of the spot that they're in and taking that spot from them. Now, I'm American, so uh, we have a certain view about this, that other parts of the world are a little bit softer. I don't think you guys are in Joburg, but uh, it, it's not talked about a lot. Like we don't talk about competition very much. We don't talk about uh, capturing market share as a competition, but it is a competition. And what that means for you, if you're an entrepreneur, if it's a competition, you're a competitor. You don't get to decide that you're a competitor. You are a competitor. It's not a choice for you to make. You have to go out into the market and compete. And what's the competition over? It's generally over who can create the most compelling, differentiated value for the person, the client, or the customer that you're pursuing. And so this book was, um, oddly enough, the first book that I've been able to identify that even touches on the idea of competition. But that's really what we're doing. We're playing a game where one of us wins and one of us generally loses. And you want to be on the side that wins in as many contests as you can. 
Um, there's so much to get into there. So um, are you familiar with the idea of category design in com- in context sure. of comp- – yeah, so that's great. So uh, to your point, I think a lot of us talk about um, – we don't like to talk about competition. We like to talk about category design, you know, and Uber being the category king of their market, you know, and Airbnb and all these other brands. Because to your point, we love the model so much. Um, I just want to bring up um, the website there. And if you got to, I see you got your computer there. If you go to bolt.eu, um, but I'm just bringing it up for our audience so that they can follow along. Um, it's it's literally a carbon copy of of Uber. That's what it looks like from a in customer perspective. The fast, affordable way to ride. Um, and it's interesting, you know, if you think about Bolt's play here, because Uber's very much entrenched. I mean, we all have Uber's apps. I don't, I don't have Bolt's app, and neither do you. You haven't even heard of them before, right? Um, but they're making a direct play after, or you know, to try, try and capture market share from uh, from uh, the entrenched incumbent here, which is which is Uber. Um, what does what have you learned about this uh, play from a, a challenger brand like Bolt, for example? How much, if you were to step back a bit and say to yourself that you know Uber owns eighty percent of the economics in their category, what chance does a smaller player with clearly less budget have against an entrenched player like Uber? So uh, essentially, there's three real choices of strategy that you can pick, and you, you do have to pick one. So if you don't pick one of these strategies, you're schizophrenic and the market doesn't know what to do with you. So the first choice that you can make is to have a lower price. So there will be lower price offerings coming in any category. So Uber's got the category. Somebody will figure out how to do it at a little bit lower of a price. And there will be an audience for that. Not not the biggest audience, but there will be an audience that's like, I want to do that, but I don't want to pay what Uber charges me to do that. So that's one choice. The second choice is that you can just have a much better product. So in, in the United States and probably in the world, there, there's not anybody who does better than Apple. I mean, Apple's got the, the, it's a dominant market because it's got the best computers, the best phones, the best tablets. I think 70% of tablets that are online uh, on the internet are uh, iPads and the, they're just a, they're a category of their own because of that. Even though you can get a Samsung Galaxy uh, tablet or something else, just there's not that many being used uh, as compared to that. So that's the best product. Every market's got that. So I can get a Kia for like fifteen thousand dollars. I can get a Mercedes for a hundred thousand dollars. It's a different category altogether. So you you can do better by deciding to be better. That that's a choice that you can make. Uber's great, but how would I improve on that so that it's even a better experience for someone? And then the last choice you can have is what's called customer intimacy. Customer intimacy means I'm going to customize this for you in such a way that it's going to feel like it's very, very personal to you and we're going to have a personal relationship. So if you've been in an Uber and uh, Uber would never like this being said, you will find somebody who understands the customer intimacy model. And they will say, uh, Matt, listen, are you going back to the airport this week? And you're going to say yes. And they're going to say, here's my card. Will you text me and I'll come and get you? And what are they trying to say? I'll be your driver. We'll cut Uber out of this whole thing so I can make more money. And I'll be sitting in front of your hotel waiting for you at 445 in the morning or whatever time you want me there. So they're trying to make it more personal. I love that. Like I, I love Uber and I don't want to cheat Uber because I, I need them to succeed because I show up in different cities every week. 
But when somebody says, I'll be your personal driver when you're in Chicago and they give you a good experience, now Uber's out because they got beat by the one thing that scale can't beat. And the only thing that scale can't beat is intimacy. So you have to decide what is your play going to be? If you're going to be in the category, how are you going to play in that category? And there's always players in every single one of those uh, strategies in every single category. Mm. Uh, if you If you are a person who likes the personal touch. Like I have a tailor. I, I go to my tailor. They know me. I don't have to, uh, I don't have to go into the dressing room because they've got my measurements. I walk in, I buy something and they tailor it and then we're, and we're done. I would rather do that than go somewhere else. And there's a whole bunch of things that you prefer that way. Not everything. There's some things that you don't care enough about to pay more or you, you don't need it to be any better than it is. But for the things that we care about, there's always going to be people that are going to fall into one of those strategies. Mm. So you got to sort of pick how you play. Okay. That's interesting. Um, we've got, we launched uh, about two weeks ago, we launched um, something called firesalehardware.com and it's a, a hardware marketplace at Uber discounted prices. Sorry to use the Uber word there, <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's literally the cheapest hardware that you can get laptops, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it's, it's interesting for me because on, we're a group of companies on the other side, we've got digital Kung Fu and we never, we're expensive basically because we're the best, right. we have the best products. So we charge whatever we want. And we, we've had many proposals, clients kick it back and go, ha, but I can get it for $5,000 cheaper or $10,000 cheaper. We're like, go waste your money there. We're the best. Right. That's um, right. So, but it's interesting because now I'm in the situation where I'm the CEO of two companies. One's a discount play super pricey, you know, in terms of discounted prices. And the other one's very expensive. Um, and I'd like to get your view. When should you compete on price, actually? Uh, when that's your strategy. So, like, if that's your strategy, so what I would tell you is uh, what I, I'm a purist, Matt. So, like, pick your pick your strategy. And I'm, I would be making the same exact decision that you did. On this one, we're not discounting anything. The value is so great, you either get it and you pay for it or you make concessions and you get something that's way less than what we're giving you, period. I'm not changing that. That's that's a customer intimacy or best product, best service uh, approach. And if you stay close to people and you have a longer relationship, it's customer intimacy. If you do it one time, it's probably just best product or service. Uh, on the other business, that's it's designed to say all of you that are too cheap to buy a $6,000 MacBook Pro, uh, here, here's this computer for you for $399. And, and they need the $399. You know who you are. So I'm a purist. Whatever you do, stay in your lane because that's the value that you create. You've decided I'm going to create value for people who can't afford a really expensive hardware. Okay. And then on the other side, you've said, over here, where it's in this other category, I'm only going to go after the people who really want to spend the money and get the result that they want. You have to know who you are. You could have different businesses in each one of these lanes. And what you'll see people do when they decide to try to pull the competitors away from them is you'll see somebody like uh, Samsung put out a $1,400 phone and then put out a $399 phone trying to keep you in the brand. So if you really think Samsung's the brand, they try to eliminate you buying some cheaper phone by competing by the, with themselves. That's what they do. So Apple's doing the same thing. They now have like a mini iPhone. They've got the 12 Max and then they got a mini. 
because they don't want to lose that person to Samsung. So that that's the way the game is getting played. Mm. Great. So that's, that, clarifies that clarifies that one for me. Whoop, whoop. Um, so, you're not schizophrenic. No, Matt. I'm not. You, uh, Thank you're God. Just, you're just the purest <laughs> in the model, which is good. <laughs> I'm pure. Pure baby. That's what I like. Yep. Um, so I, I, I'd love talking about startups because uh, we're, we're like, we're, in, in the next two quarters, we're launching probably another three, uh, all doing different things. And um, I wanted to ask you around competitive dynamics. So if you are a startup and you're looking to, let's just say, capture market share and go after a, uh, an entrenched player's account or client or customer or whatever, a brand in their portfolio, um, number one, should you care about that or should you just worry about winning an, an account that's not serviced by an entrenched player? Uh, it's the first thing. Um, and then um, the second thing is how do you decide which account that sits within a competitor portfolio to attack? I, I have very, very strong personal feelings on this. So if you don't already buy what I sell, I don't care about you at all. I, I don't, I don't want to make a market. Uh, I, this is my own personal opinion. Like you could have somebody who says, I want to go make a new market. Okay, good for you. Go do that. It's a lot of work. I would rather steal your clients from you because they're already buying what I sell. So that, that's the best thing. You're already buying what I sell. I don't have to make the conceptual sale and tell you this is why this is a good idea for you. You already believe it's a good idea for you. Now, which ones do I want to pick off? Whoever spends the most money, whoever spends the most money. I want the largest accounts I can get as early as I can because I want the revenue so I can have the profit so I can continue to go and pursue that. When I, I started in the family business uh, after I came back from California and I had a brain surgery, I hired salespeople to work for me. And I had a number of them say, everybody that I call on already has somebody providing them with temporary employees. And uh, I, they would say, I, it's so hard to get a deal because everybody's already got somebody. And uh, I would say, that's why we're calling on them. And like, wouldn't it be easier to call on people that aren't using temporary staff? Yeah, it'd be way easier to call on, but they don't spend any money in our category. Like, why do I care about them? If they don't already buy what I sell, why would I waste time with them when there's a whole bunch of people who are unhappy buying it from somebody else? Mm. Let's go figure out how to do that. And so I would tell you, I, I think you you pick whatever the target is for you. I, I targeted the largest staffing companies in the world because I recognize something about them. Uh, they're soft. They're, they're, non, they're non-entrepreneurial. They're in a big company, so they've got structure and hierarchy, and they've got uh, processes in place that they can't change. And I sat in a room, literally, with two of my competitors. We were all competing for this client, uh, Limited Brands. We, we were all sitting in the room helping talk to them about peak season. I happened to be in the room with the two largest companies in staffing in the United States at the time. I worked for one of them for a short time in L.A., and then the other one I knew. So it was a Deco and uh, Olsten. And Olsten actually um, was purchased by Deco a few years later. And I watched these two guys selling. And I thought, these guys don't know beans from Brussels sprouts, man. Like, they don't know anything. And I was looking at them and just thinking, like, they're, they literally don't understand the business. They're talking about how many offices they have worldwide. Like, nobody cares how many offices you have worldwide. You're in Columbus, Ohio. They need to know what can you do for me here where my locations are? 
And I realized I'm going to smoke these guys because they don't understand how to have a client conversation. <laughs> and uh, that first year, uh, I got a third of the business. The second year, I got both of them out. I had 100% of the business. And it was just they weren't good salespeople. As an entrepreneur, you better, damn well better be a good salesperson. Mm-hmm. And you better have some people that can go make contact and have client conversations. The, the advantage that we always have over them is that we're scrappy we're resourceful. Why are we resourceful? Because we don't have the resources. Like I don't have a $21 billion company. At the time I had a $3 million company and I took the business away from a $7 billion company and a $4 billion company who had way more resources, but no resourcefulness and no chops and no game. And, uh, and their representatives, I mean, you would look at them and go like, they have no chance anyway. Like they don't know anything as yeah. an entrepreneur. It's very different for us. Yeah. Uh, we have this saying that, um, you know, never listen to the opinions of sheep when you're the lion. <laughs> yeah, right. But you're touching on a very important uh, point, which is almost like I was actually going to, it's a great um, uh, sort of point of departure because I was going to ask you about what type of belief should one recruit when you are attacking a, or looking to a, a steal a customer from an, a competitor. Um, and you kind of illustrated it very well. Maybe we could double down on it, but that is the belief from my perspective is that if there are, you know, a hundred accounts within your competitor's portfolio, you cannot assume at all ever that they are all happy. You can't uh, because you're dealing with humans and humans make mistakes. Um, and in fact, the bigger the portfolio, the harder it is to serve. Markets move. Uh, all those hundred customers have changing requirements every week. Um, and so if, if that competitor is not all over that, like 100% over that, and it's almost impossible yep. to be all over everything all the time. You will drop balls. Uh, you, you well, know. In, in, the, in the beginning of that book, I explained, like, you're, you're complacent. Mm. You're entitled. You think your contract protects you. I mean, th- that's what they think. But you're right. About a third of their clients are really happy with them. About a third don't really care about them at all. And a third are unhappy. Uh, and the ones that believe that they're happy with the, your competitor – they're not really happy. They just don't know that there's something better available to them and they've sort of settled for what they got. So I, I like to go after the ones where there's a lot of revenue, a lot of profit. And, and the, the thing that I would tell you, Matt, if the bigger a problem is for somebody, you're going to get paid and you're going to win business by creating more value than someone else. So the bigger the problem you can solve for them, the, the better you can help them perform the the easier it is for you to take it away from somebody else who is complacent or or who is entitled or feels like, well, I have a contract with them, so nothing bad can happen. You can have a, a, a whatever contract you want. If they're not getting what they want, they think there's something better, your contract's dead. That That's just how it goes. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think you're exactly right. So figure out where you want to play in their stack right now and then just start going after them. Um, Anthony, are there any stories that you could maybe recount or recall um, that would help illustrate um, how to go about acquiring a competitor's client or customer? Um, so I'm thinking about um, maybe historically. I'm think I'm going back and I'm thinking about Coke and Pepsi. Um, even I don't know who actually won that whole battle, in your view. Um. Coke, I think, has greater market share. 
Uh, and that certainly there's places like if you ever find yourself in Atlanta, Georgia, where Coca-Cola is headquartered, you can't get a Pepsi. Like, you're going to have a tough time finding a Pepsi. That's like home base for them. So it, it's hard. I think Coke has still has the dominant brand, but Pepsi's, I mean, not far behind it at all. And, and remember the world that we live in. So you're, you started this conversation talking about what what I call the the new reality, which is constant accelerating disruptive change. Constant, doesn't stop, accelerating, it's going faster, disruptive, it's more disruptive. So Pepsi and Coke have to buy people like Monster Energy Drink, because Monster Energy Drink comes out, they capture a big part of the market, and Coca-Cola has to go like, we have no response to this, we have to buy them. And, and so that's what's happening. Every every uh I don't know, probably it feels like about every couple months, there's something new that shows up in one of those refrigerators. And one of these groups has to go after them because they capture so much market share by having novelty and bringing something new. People like Coke, they like Pepsi, but they also like novelty. And so they're, they're showing up with a monster energy drink or a Red Bull. You know, these, these other categories start showing up. There, there was just two. And those two bought Sprite, Sierra Mist, Dr. Pepper, Mellow Yellow, like all of those things. And now there's all these other categories. But you can think about this in every single place. So here in the United States, we've got Roku, Hulu, Netflix, Apple, Disney. Like there, there's just an, an, an unprecedented number of choices now for people. And, uh, and it, you're, you're going to see that continue on as everything fractures. I'm in the United States. I played rock and roll from the time I was 15 until I was 26 years old. And there was, there was two rock stations in Columbus, Ohio. You listen to QFM 96 or you listen to 99.7 The Blitz. That's it. That's all you had. Everybody listened to the same thing. Right now, you probably have a Spotify account or an Apple Music account or both. And, and all of us are listening to what we want to on our own personal taste. We don't all have the same wants and desires anymore, and it's being catered to by people like you, entrepreneurs. Like, go to Apple or come to us here, and we'll give you something different. And uh, that's the world that we live in. I would tell you, uh, you want to think deeper about these things. Like, what what do I want as an entrepreneur? What what part of this market do I want? And then you put all of your focus there, and you go after the competitors there by deciding where do they have a vulnerability? Where are they not serving somebody? And then the way that I think of this is that the fourth level of value is strategic. Like, do you really care about this? Is it so important to you for, for your uh, digital Kung Fu? Is it so important to you that you would pay more to get something this good? And, and 70% of the population goes, no, Matt, I'm not willing to pay that. You're like, good. You're not for us. Have a good life. See you down the road. That's it. Right. I don't want to spend any time with them because they don't appreciate the value proposition. Mm. So that's the part you have to figure out is what, what does Bolt have to do to take the people who are unhappy with Uber and why are they unhappy? And then can Bolt look at that and say, here's how we're going to respond to this so that they feel like Bolt's a better choice for them. We've got Lyft here in the United States. I don't know if you've got yeah. that one there. Okay. Yeah. So we've got Lyft and some people like Lyft and they think that the people are better than the people that drive Ubers. That's, that's what they tell me. I've been in Lyfts and I've been in Ubers. I can't tell the difference, but there are people who prefer Lyft because it's not Uber. Mm, that's very interesting. What's fascinating for me, uh, I was in New York um, 
probably a year and a half ago. And um, I was there for a client of ours. And I was just walking up and down, obviously, New York, Manhattan Island, whatever. And, um, you know, if you think about the exposure media-wise and brand-wise that we have here in, in Africa, you know, it's all Starbucks. So you just think if you're going to walk around New York, you're going to just see Starbucks forever. And what was fascinating for me just in Manhattan, right, um, was the number of coffee shops, like smaller coffee shop chains that had more than one store and were thriving. And it's fascinating because you think, ah, there's not enough room for me to get in there. And if you think about, um, you know, Coke and Pepsi, and then there was Fanta and all the other soft drinks, and then there was Red Bull, and then they created the smart drink category, and then there was Monster. And just in in, in uh, South Africa, if you walk into like a petrol station or something like that, um, you'll see there's there's literally a dozen different smart drink brands here right. alone, right. just here. And they're clearly doing well because they've got distribution, they've got presence, and it's it's a, it's cheap and it's hey, you know, it's it's jacked with you know fructose and caffeine, um, and it's fascinating for me that there's always room for 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 you to get in there. There is always room for another player. If if you can create some sort of differentiated value, so uh, I'm I'm in downtown Columbus right now. There's a Starbucks about three blocks this way. At the outside of this wall right here is the Roosevelt. And the Roosevelt's a coffee shop that is built on the idea of um, giving back to communities and particularly like um, people who are abducted, sex slave kind of things. They do a bunch of work in that area, literally right there. Caddy Corner on the other street is Brios, another coffee shop, like directly across the street, Caddy Corner. And they're both full all the time. They're both full all the time. And, and it just depends which one speaks to you. And that, that's what you're trying to ask and answer as the entrepreneur. Like, wh- what's my audience? What do they care about? And then, you know, how do I take care of that for them? And there's always room for somebody who can create differentiated value. So why, why don't I want to go to Starbucks? There's a local coffee shop called Stoff's, which is just down the street this way. And Stoffs roast their own beans in the building that you're in. It's a totally different experience. It's very high care and it's very custom. And there's a Starbucks literally across the street from them. So there's the people who like Starbucks and then there's the people that like Stoffs. I like Stoffs better, but there's no drive through So uh, they don't help me very much when I'm on my way uh, from Westerville, Ohio to downtown. So the, the problem with them is that you have to go in and sit down and have coffee, but on a Sunday, that's a great thing to do. Your, your job, when you think about competition, is what do I give you that, that uh, somebody else can't give you? And what am I competing on? And you're competing on something that they value. So I, I have a structure in the book that the first level of value is the product itself. Not a lot of value there because everybody has a good product. Like there's 16 Monster Energy drinks. Pick one, right? They're all full of caffeine and sugar. Uh, the second thing is what's the experience like? So that that's good, especially for B2C. The third is what can you get done what I'm trying to get done here? So uh, I, I would say monster energy drink. What, what you're trying to do is get caffeinated. Uh, that's it. And then the fourth level is like, what do I really, really want? You know, I, I want a brand that sort of recognizes who I am and what I need. And I want them to be where I need them to be. So there's all these other factors. If you start from four, like you start with like, who are they and what do they really want? What are they really trying to do? And then you try to serve them there. Then it starts to get easier to compete. 
Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I want to double down on something you mentioned. That you said, especially in the consumer space, I think in the B2B space, which is where we have historically paid a lot, it's very, very, it's harder than ever really to get attention, I, I believe. Um, and, um, you know, money goes where attention flows. And so how, I wanted to maybe use that to, to uh, springboard forward and ask you, how do you get attention? Like if, if you have, let's just say you're a startup and there's an entrenched bigger competitor, much bigger budgets, you don't have much cash. Um, how do you go about um, winning the attention war uh, with someone that's got a bigger budget than you? Well, so there, there's a couple things I would tell you about that. And I, it's the only thing I really know. I mean, I, that's all I've, I've, I've never been in the position where I was the dominant force. I've always been uh, David to Goliath. That's my only thing I've ever known. I've not done anything else. Uh, I've, I've got clients who are Goliath though. So, so I know what that's like. Cause I have clients that have, you know, $7 billion in revenue and they, they've got a, a, a thousand sales reps, you know, so it's a, a different, different category than what I grew up in. Um, what I would tell you is that the first question that you're trying to answer for the client that you want, that's going to get their attention is you have to be able to answer the question, why should I change? So what, what would cause me to change? And in B2B, this is a lot easier. So I'll, I'll give you an example of the difference between level three and level four. So I have a client who's in marketing communications and they go to big companies and the big company says, print this letter for us, fold it in thirds, stick it in an envelope and mail it to the Southern half of the United States, uh, men between the ages of 18 and 32. And that's what they do. And so that's the value. The value is, can you print this? Can you fold it? Could you put it in an envelope? Could you mail it to this people? And when I took over uh, teaching them how to think about sales, I'm like, anybody can do that. Anybody could do that. that that's stupid. Like it's, there's no value in that, except they don't have to do it. And I taught them the fourth level of value. What are they trying to do? Why are they sending this mail? They're sending this mail because they need somebody to go out to a website and fill out a credit card application. The, the, they're, they're sending it because they're trying to acquire new customers. So when you talk to the client, if you say to them, I can take a piece of paper and fold it in thirds for you, stick it in an envelope and mail it to a list you give me. So can everybody else, Johnny, good for you. Like, you know, that doesn't help me. I got 25 people that can do what you just did. It's so dumb. Anybody could do it. But then when you say, listen, I can help you acquire 18 to 32 year old demographic customers with the highest lifetime value at a lower acquisition cost than you're paying now. You want to have a chat and I could show you what I'm thinking. Then it's like, so you can help me get the customers that I want at a lower acquisition price than I'm paying now. I'm interested. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to get attention, it's got to be help them get what they're really trying to get. They're not trying to get paper folded. And so I, I had to teach a thousand grownups like, they're not trying to get the, they don't need paper folded. Anybody can do that. A machine does it. How do they really think about the decision they're making? And so they were afraid to go talk to chief marketing officers because they thought, well, I don't have anything to say. And I'm like, the marketing officer's getting fired in 18 months. Like he's, he or she's already lost their job. They're just waiting out the 18 months. So they get fired for what? Not getting enough new customers at the lowest acquisition price that have the highest lifetime value. Go tell them you can help them with that. And it turns out when you tell people, I can help you with the primary thing that you're going to be measured on, they're like, 
you know what, Matt, you're an interesting guy. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how interesting you were. Have a seat. Let's chat. Uh, that, that's how you get attention. You have to help them understand why change because there's something better available to you. But if you don't answer why change, like I have a new monster energy drink. I already have one of those. I like Red Bull. Yeah, I got to tell you why. What would make mine different enough that you would say, I would give this a try over what I prefer? Mm. So you, that, that's the work that we're doing, differentiating. Yeah, you're very, uh, you're very nasty towards Johnny there in marketing here. Just letting you What's know. What's that? My, you, Johnny, you're not very nice to him. <laughs> yeah, no. Johnny or Jenny. I mean, it could be a Jenny too, but it's probably Johnny. It's probably Johnny. Jenny's smarter than that. Jenny's like, you know what? I got it already. He just said there's level four. I get it. I don't need to hear another word. Thanks, Anthony. See you down the road. Yeah, man. Right? You, you got it all figured out, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny, man. I was actually going to, I'm glad you mentioned firmographic stuff because my next question was actually about the role of data. Um, so I think, uh, you know, one of the things we do to illustrate value before a customer buys is we predict their pipeline before they start. And we, you, we do that using at, you know, real market cost per lead data. So we can actually tell them literally this is exactly what you're going to get, you know, yeah. few variances, but you know, as opposed to it's a theoretical thumb suck. Um, so um, what is the role of data now? I mean, if you think about um, so much data, proliferation of data, everything, everybody has data, but it's underutilized in many respects. Um, what is the role of data now in, you know, stealing business from uh, competitors? So it's, it's really, really an interesting uh, conversation that you're starting here with this. So I get up in the morning. I write a thousand words every morning when I get up at 4.30. That's the first thing I do. The second thing I do is I go to the gym in my basement and I've got a giant TV on the wall and I turn on CNBC and I just listen to Squawk Box because I'm getting everything that's going on in politics, everything that's going on in economics, everything that's going on with markets. And I just get to pick up passively all these insights without me having to go do any work. And so I'm, I'm listening to data being reported all the time. Uh, where salespeople generally and entrepreneurs who sell, uh, one of the things that they make a mistake about is they do believe that their product or service is good. So they want to start at level one. Like I got a great monster energy drink. Good for you, Johnny. Uh, I, I don't care about your drink. Like, that's it. And, and Johnny's like, but it's really good. I know it's really good, but I already have one. I don't need that. And so that, that's the, the starting point is they get wrapped around what they do and not what the client's actually buying. You're buying customer acquisition. You're, you're not buying marketing. You're buying customers. So you have to tell them, I'm going to help you get the customers that you want, not run ads for you. I mean, so that, that's the difference in the way that you have to think about this. So the, the thing that you have to think about when you're doing this with data is you're looking for trends that would help you explain to the client their world. So I believe everybody is looking through a lens. Like you're looking at all your businesses through a certain lens because you've had uh, Matt Brown experience. So you're, you're biased by all the things that you see and believe in all of your experiences. So now I have to come in and go like this. Get that lens out of the way. Let me show you another lens. And then you're like, I, I didn't see this before. Well, it's because I gave you a different lens to look through. Now I'm giving you a different lens. The lens I'm giving you is level four. And so then you're like, wait, well, what is the strategic value? They don't have the insights. They don't know how to run these ads. They don't know 
how to go into Facebook and build an audience that's going to be a lookalike audience to exactly what they want. They don't realize that it has to show up seven times before they buy, you know, so you have all this data. So you have to be a teacher. And, and here's the thing. It's not just the trend. It's the changes in the trends. It's the changes. What's going on? So we used to do it that way. We don't do it that way anymore. Well, why not, Matt? Because it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> We've moved on to this one. Let me show you why and what we have to do to get you there. You are a teacher. So in every relationship you have with a client, one of you is one up and one of you is one down. Just It's just depending on, on whether or not you have the chops to say, I'm the one giving you advice because I know better than you do about this particular topic. Now, you know your business way better than I do. You know a hundred things better than I do. Uh, we have a guy named John Mellencamp here, and he had a song where he said, uh, I know a lot of things, but I don't know a lot of other things. And and that's right. So in this, you're in my world, I know a lot of things. In your world, I don't know a lot of other things. So you help me understand your world, and I'm going to tell you what the right answer is. I need to be one up because I'm teaching you and giving you the advice. This is why you should buy from us. This is the better result you're going to get. So you can't be lopsided. Like you don't know anything that I don't already know. If you don't know something, if you don't have data, if you don't have facts, if you don't have experiences, if you don't have the experience of helping people solve these problems, I don't need you. I don't, I don't need you, Johnny. I'll go with Jenny. Jenny's sharp. She's on her game. She's, she's, Dress nice. She's uh, she's smart. She's got tons of facts. She can back up everything she says. I like her a lot better than you. <laughs> Way to kick him when he's down, Anthony. <laughs> or Johnny. Johnny, what a douche! If only he would learn. If only he would work with changing trend data better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, no, he doesn't even pay attention. I beg salespeople. I'm like, listen, just put CNBC on in the morning. Just listen. You're a business person working with business people. Guess what they care about? Business. Like, why are you not paying attention to business news? And they're like, well, you know, I'm watching Game of Thrones and Queen's Gambit. And like, yeah, okay, good. But how's that help you? Like, it, you need to be able to help your client. You got to know things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And you have to be relevant, right? I mean, I think that's probably yes. the, the big thing for, I mean, so one of the things just to add to what you've said is that um, January is a very, moving into January n- next month, and it's a very busy time to get a hold of cu- customers usually because they're in planning, budget, it's just I'm back from holiday and panic, panic, panic. Whether they are actually that busy or not, who knows, but that's the excuse. So uh, before the end of the year, we booked time in our clients' diaries. And in that session, it wasn't a brief taking opportunity. It was a opportunity for us to do exactly what you said, which is to present trends back to them around things like cost per lead, like on platform. And so one of the interesting things that we see in terms of data and that we're going to feed back into our existing customers, right? Just to maintain that relevance, not even to go, uh, you know, steal a competitor as an example, or maybe even use this approach as part of a new business development strategy. But this is purely to keep our customers top and our brand top of mind. Um, and cost per leads, the ability to get somebody to fill out a form effectively online is just going north, right? So the economics of LinkedIn and Facebook and all these platforms, it doesn't make sense anymore to spend all this money. Like we spend so much media money. The the South African Reserve Bank shut us down because we were sending so much cash offshore to LinkedIn and Facebook and all these um, uh, platforms and so forth. But it underscores your point, right? Which is we now know this context better than anybody else. So we now communicate that and invariably 
what are they going to say? Well, these guys are the best. Well, th- then they also have to do this. Like, I don't have to think about any of this. Matt's thinking about this. Matt's going to come in and tell me what I need to do. Like, I can give that up now. Now I've got somebody who's proactive. They're not complacent. They're not entitled. They think they have to earn their right to stay here by creating new value. And they come in and explain to me with a briefing at the beginning of the year what I need to change to start getting better results. Mm. And they just told me, stop spending money on LinkedIn because it's $7.50 you know, to even get a click and not, a, not even anything other than a click. Like that, That's incredibly high. And why are we doubling down on Facebook right now? Well, because we can get it for for uh, some, we can get an actual lead for something like $6. Like, okay, now I understand. And once you prove that you're my outsourced resource and I don't have to think about this anymore because you're briefing me, then when my boss comes to me and says, what the hell are you spending so much on digital Kung Fu? What does that even mean? Then I'm like, okay, so let me tell you, we're moving from LinkedIn to Facebook and here's why. Like it's the cost over here. And they, they can sound like they know what they're talking about, but all they're doing is just parroting back what you taught them to say because mm-hmm. they let you do their thinking for them. And, and every, so read the Bible, uh, read history. You will not find a great leader in history that wasn't surrounded by smart people. They surround themselves with trusted advisors. So as an entrepreneur, as a salesperson, you have a choice. Like I'm going to either be the trusted advisor and I'm going to handle this for them or they're going to find somebody else who will. And, and that's generally the way it works. Most people are lazy, complacent, entitled, seeking comfort, settle for mediocre results. It's not hard to out-hustle them. Watch some TV, listen to business news, study your client's vertical, have something to say, teach them how to think about the business better based on your experiences. It becomes an easier game. Yeah, it's, but it's so easy to relax though, isn't it? Hey, yeah, it's like especially it's, when you're successful. Oh God, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, hello, Africa's best tech startup. Check this out. Isn't this? Isn't it? Wouldn't it be nice just to relax now? Hey, that you've won. <laughs> I had a friend of mine who I uh, I I tried to get on the New York Times bestseller, but they won't put a sales book on there. I tried it with my first book, and after I, I I'd written a blog post every day for uh, six years when I pushed first the first book out. I was like, why do I need to write a book? I write every day. Like, just read the blog posts. They're all there. And then I wrote the book, and uh, one of my good friends said, now that you've written the book, you can stop writing the blog every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why would I ever stop doing the thing that creates future success for me? Like, why would I do that? And his, his thinking was like, you can, now, you can now settle. You can just relax. Why would I ever relax? I'm going to die, and then I'm going to relax for the rest of eternity. And I only got one shot of this. I'm 53 years old. I got 40 more years. I got four more decades. I'm not going to spend them relaxing. Why would I do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're describing, You're describing. I, I, I think it's Carol Brenner. I don't know if that's the right author, but she wrote, you're describing this growth versus fixed mindset. Yeah, Carol Dweck. Yeah. Carol Dweck. Thank you so much for that A correction. Um, yeah, so that's exactly it, right? The fixed mindset will say, ah, just chill. You know, yeah. Why? You you've reached your you you know you've made it whatever. Uh, but I love that. I was actually going to ask you towards there. Is, I'm just cognizant of time. Why do you write a thousand words a day? Like and and also by the way, I love the discipline that you've approached this whole thing with. 
Um, yeah. Why do you do it? Uh, one, I'm a writer, so I, I can't not write. And writing is one, one of the things that I would tell you, if, if you want to improve yourself and if you want to improve your results and you want to improve the results of your business, sit down and try to write a thousand words when you wake up. Try to write a thousand words. It'll take you an hour and a half when you start. It takes me forty-five minutes now because I'm a fast writer. Um, because I've, if 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 it was like uh, bicep curls, you know, my right arm would have a bicep like this big. You know, it'd be a giant muscle because I've been working the same muscle for no other muscles, just that muscle. But the muscle that I'm really exercising is I'm thinking about every problem in sales and management and success and leadership and hustle and productivity. So I'm every single day, I'm spending an hour seriously focused on a topic. And so I've been thinking. So my, my thoughts are organized. I know what I believe. I know what I know because I've been putting it out on paper. And whenever I have something to explore, it gets written down. And so it's, it's allowed me to create tons of structure around my thinking and it's allowed me to build things that serve other people because I've thought through uh, what I know and what all my experiences are in, in a hundred different categories. So it's a super, super useful exercise. Yeah. I'm going to bastardize this quote now, but it goes something like this. If you, if you want to be an expert, learn something, but if you want to master something, teach it. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. You don't even know what you know till you start writing it down. Mm. Like if you were to sit down today and say, what do I know about podcasting? You could write a thousand words. Like it, w- it wouldn't take you long. Like what, what would yeah. somebody need to know to be able to do this? And you're going to like, first, here's what you got to know. Like yeah. You got to have a personality. You got to, you know, you, you would just be able to, it, it would just come out of you because you do it. Mm. And you can't know it if you don't do it. And you can't teach it if you don't know it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Exactly it. Um, the other thing to say, just on that, uh, this came up on the last podcast with. Um, let me get his name here. Keep doing this. Um, it hasn't been released yet, um, but it's come up on the show a few times um, where um, you you romanced about the idea of scale before you start. Um, so, like to write a thousand word blog post, it's like no, no, no. I just want the book. You know what I mean? So you'll <laughs> you'll you'll delete. You you know you you want the you're not, you're not, we don't want delayed gratification, right? We want that instant grat. So we just want the, the heroin, right? And the cocaine. We, and we will do anything to get that, but we don't want the slog, the slow and rewarding slog of podcasting as an example <laughs> to get to. Oh, no, I see that, that, that's exactly where you're right. So in the, in the remaining couple minutes, I just have to say this. Uh, if you go to Facebook on any given day, you're going to see something that says, trust the process. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows what the hell that means. Like, what does trust the process mean? Uh, Trust the process means if you want to become a writer, write, just write every single day, write and write and write and write. And pretty soon you'll have some competency that you didn't have, but you have to trust the process. What people really mean when they say trust the process is do the work. Just keep doing the work. I don't want the work. I want the reward of the work. Don't even think about the reward of the work. Don't, don't do anything with that. On, um, we have two minutes left. So let me, let me tell you, in December 27th, 2009, in the heart of the recession, the great recession we had here, I told my wife, I'm going to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. It's now about 4.15 for me, but it started at 5. And I'm going to write every single day 
And at the end of a year, I'm going to be keynote speaking for large sales organizations. And I gave her this amount of money that I was going to charge. Uh, that, that was like a good amount of money. And she said, I have no idea what you're talking about at all, but I love you and I support you. So whatever you want to do, you can do that. And 10 months later, I told her it'd be a year before I did that. 10 months later, I got the first phone call after writing every day for 10 months. I got a phone call that said, we want you to come and speak to our organization January 7th. So it was January 7th, 2011. Uh, I missed my one year by something like nine days. I mean, I was almost exactly right. And all I committed to was to write and publish every day. I didn't commit to anything other than I'm just going to write and publish and people are going to recognize what I can offer them. And they're going to ask me to speak. And uh, it worked exactly that way. Trust the process, do the work, just keep doing the work. Don't, don't focus on the reward. That only comes because you did the work and uh, there's no other way to get there. Anthony, why do you do what you do? Uh, I, I, I don't do what I do. I do what I am. So I, uh, this is what I am. So I have to do this. I'm a teacher. So I have to teach. I'm a writer. So I have to write. I'm an entertainer. So I have to speak. Uh, I, I'm a student. So I have to learn. Like I, I, I just do what I already am. Boom. And on that bombshell, Anthony and Arena, thanks for your time on the Matt Brown show. Good to meet you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, your inner game for free right now today. You can grab that on mathbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a two percent share of voice globally to an 11 percent share of voice globally in only seven days if you'd like more information head on over to showworksmedia.com for more that is showworks with an x.com